You're listening to the Oz TV podcast, only on the Oz Network. It is the Oz Network coming to you once again today for a special interview with an actor that is on one of the main shows that we're covering, of course, Lost, Third Watch, and Nip Tuck. Today it is Nip Tuck's turn to shine. As we speak to Mr. Robert Lozado now, Robert, of course, played Escobar Galado across 10 episodes, four different seasons, one of the most memorable side characters ever in Nip Tuck, and such a, such a memorable face on anything that he ever appears on. Obviously, uh, completely, uh, recognizable from the amount of tattoos that he has, uh, fantastic artwork across his entire body, and, uh, great chat here with Robert talking about his role on Nip Tuck, some great stories behind the scenes, and also really, diving into uh, the ink that he has on his body and kind of the challenges that, that has brought him getting roles, uh, where he went about getting the ink and uh, everything else in between. So fantastic chat here with Robert uh, as we really get into the depths of the minds of these actors who are appearing on these shows. Without further ado, Robert Lasado here on the Oz Network. Massive pleasure to be able to welcome our next guest here to the Oz Network as we continue on our interview series with actors who are appearing in shows that we're covering at the moment. Today it's all about Nip Tuck and uh, a certain uh, actor who you will very much be familiar with if you watch Nip Tuck played uh, the role of the iconic, I'm going to say iconic because I think his character is just so amazing, Escobar Galado throughout 10 episodes, of course over four seasons and outside of Nip Tuck has uh, appeared on numerous shows and movies that really... Uh, He's a memorable guy that you know who I'm talking about. Of course, I mentioned Mr. Robert Lasado is with us now. Robert, such a pleasure to have you here on the Oz Network today. Thank you, Ben. I appreciate you taking the time to call me and talk about this. It's it's such a such a pleasure, and as I said, such an amazing career. And uh, obviously, our, our main focus really is uh, Nip Tuck today. We're we're going through it and kind of uh, covering each of the episodes. And I think most Nip Tuck fans, and they hear the words Escobar Galado, they're just I'm going to say most people smile because I know they're not meant to with uh, sort of how evil your character was, but such a such a memorable character. Is this still a role that, uh, even though it's been quite some time since the show wrapped up, that, that you're still recognised for or at least remembered for? Yes, um, absolutely. When I travel and do um, some of the uh, tattoo conventions, the expos, and I meet um, some of the... Um, some of the tattoo artists and fans, etc. I find that that seems to be probably the most memorable character for people. They seem they have a they have they have a tremendous affection, and and it's astonishing to me that they remember so much of it mm-hmm. after all these years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I mean, you were there from the very beginning, obviously in the pilot, and then kind of. Uh brought back countless times. I mean, how does this role come about? And and did you know much about Ryan Murphy or uh, kind of his work? Because obviously at the time he wasn't as established as he is now, uh, you know, previously to Nip Tuck. But uh, how did the, the role of Escobar end up coming about? Interview for uh, Manifest. I go in, I audition, and, uh, you know, you hope for the best. In this particular case when I auditioned for Nip Tuck, um, it was like many of the other auditions I'd gone on. And I, I think that, you know, you, you can't overthink it. You just prepare, you read the sides, the script, et cetera, and you go in with your best foot forward. You focus on what you, you know, what it is that you have to do in that moment. And 
it, it, specifically with this experience, I tried not to pay too much attention was to who was in the room. Um, I did recognize one of the producers that was there, but I did not know who Ryan Murphy was. I just know that um, before the audition, I remember feeling I remember feeling a little bit uh, uncomfortable. But that's not unusual because, you know, I think given the nature of competition and how many men compete for this sort of thing, you sit in there with a bunch of others trying your best to focus and not get pulled into uh, to any kind of distraction. You know, sometimes men, they get people, they get nervous and they want to chit-chat, have conversations with you, with you prior to going in. And I try to avoid that so I can focus in, you know, focus on what I'm doing, I'm not there to, you know, necessarily win a popularity contest. I simply want to focus, get in there, do my job, you know, and, and have an effective audition. So you make an impact when you go in there. And uh, I had no way of really knowing uh, once the audition had concluded uh, how effectual that experience was. You know, you try not, you, you, you think you have an understanding of how it goes. You try to rely on your feelings, your instinctive nature. After you've done about a thousand auditions, you think, well, I think maybe I have a handle on this. But you really don't. You never really know uh, how it's going to play out. So to make a long story short, after I I read, I did the audition, I got the call uh, not too long after that they, were, they wanted to hire me for the pilot that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And then the rest is basically history. Yeah, yeah. And and what what's your take on the show reading that script for the pilot? Because I've seen lots of interviews and, you know, we've had uh, Roma Mafia and John Hensley on speaking about kind of just that reaction mm-hmm. to this show. Because, I mean, it really was... You know, the pilot just set the scene for what this show was going to be like, just outlandish and kind of, you know, going all different directions. Right. How, how do you react to just even seeing what this show is about? I was... I was shocked um and and it's not to dismiss it you just have no you have no way of knowing how these things are going to turn out how they're going to manifest how uh what kind of impact they're going to make in media um you just i've done so many shows i had done so many shows prior to that audition to the nip tuck experience that in retrospect as i look at it now it seemed it seemed as if some of the characters that i portrayed were a precursor to Escobar Gallardo because I had moved into a direction of character that was very different than some of the things I had done maybe a decade prior. I'd start, I started learning a little bit about um, that type of character. I tried, you know, learn to speak with a different accent than I normally see because I'm from, originally from the East Coast, mm-hmm. you know, and of New York City. And so when I moved to the West Coast, I, you know, I just I started to assimilate and learn a little about about some of the culture, the subculture, whatever. And with some of the roles that they were asking me to compete for, I had to, you know, do, do some research and all that. So I just found that um, a lot of the jobs I was starting to get hired for involved me playing uh, either a Chicano or a Hispanic gangster, you know, type thing. And so I had been doing that. And so it seemed as if Nip Tuck, before the sensational aspect of it manifested, before it became a hit show, was just another show that I was going to be working on, that I was excited to be working on, because it's always nice to have a job. And it was just another, another chapter in the book. I felt that I was, you know, um, reading on my own career, more or less, that involved this type of thing. Um, I had no way of knowing that it was going to be uh, something that would be talked about, you know, at least a decade later. Um, when I, you know, when I gone to the premiere of it, um, I was blown away. I think everybody was after the, you know, when the curtain came up and. Um, 
we you know, people started noticing me and coming up and being very nice and saying you know offering tremendous compliments etc i was like wow it's just i had no way of knowing because you know you, then you go into these things you film them you, you do your best to create a disposition of character that's effective and uh the directors give you the thumb up but you have no way of you don't you don't edit the thing you don't know if you you know you ideally you'd like to believe that that what you imagine is occurring is how it's going to translate on the screen and usually there's a gap the size of the grand canyon in terms of that you know because you you have no way of knowing what they're seeing so sometimes you'll you'll do something you have a, a general idea of what you imagine it to be like but then you you go to the premiere you go to any number of premieres and you watch the final product and you're like oh this is nothing like what i imagined or you're like oh wait a minute this is very close to what I envisioned, and sometimes that can be a very auspicious kind of occasion, and also can be very disappointing because you don't you don't have no control over the product. So I got I got it. You know, to make a long story short, I I, I realized some I, something was about to happen when I was in Santa Monica one day in California, and a woman who worked over at FX out of the blue just came up to me and said, "Robert, I, I, you don't know me. I'm an editor." And she explained that she was working on the uh, the pilot for Nip Tuck, and she said, "This is going to be quite a game change for you. She's going to be really excited with this." I was like, "Okay," so that I, I gave me the first indication that maybe this could separate me. You know, this 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 project, this the show, could be the thing, the feather in the cap, so to speak, that separates itself from all the other things that I had done prior that seemed to be preparation for something that I couldn't even see coming. And I guess in the very first episode when you're injecting Botox into a man's penis, uh, that also kind of stands out for the fact that it might be something a bit different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you, you, you're possessed by the spirit of character, the disposition of character, and a lot of times you don't even, for me at least, because I was asked quite often, to uh, let's say uh, participate in that type of uh, drama play, uh, so that after a while you know you know it doesn't phase you much. Just another installment in in, in theater of the absurd, more or less. Mm. What was it? I mean, just in that pilot filming those scenes. I mean, we're obviously big fans of Julian McMahon, proud Australian. We we love him to bits. Um, yeah. But I mean, just initially that yeah. that opening bit because I think kind of the thing that works so well uh, with Escobar with you know Christian and Sean is. This this weird over the top chemistry which you guys are meant to all like be against each other, but you just all work so well. And it just to me watching Nip Tuck always seems like it would have been just such an amazing experience filming these scenes. And we heard that from Roma, we heard that from John that even when you're doing a scene like this, um, you know, injecting a man, you know, injecting Christian's penis with Botox, that I can just imagine even just as soon as the, the director yells, cut, Ryan said, all right, okay, cut, that you guys just look like you're probably going to have a laugh behind the scenes. Going, oh, that was great set. That was great. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. From the point of view of, uh, of Julian sitting in the chair there, yeah, I would think from that point of view it would probably be... Um, uh, I don't know, challenging mm -hmm. to sit there in your underwear while that's occurring. I can relate uh, in regarding uh, a different episode where the character Escobar was, uh, I don't know if he had any clothes on. I think he was naked or maybe it was, I was wearing, I was wearing a G string to do the sequence, but there was, it, I think, I don't know if it was the, it wasn't the pilot. I think it was some of the episodes, one of the episodes that came later on in that first season where, um, I think, what is it, uh, Dylan Walsh, uh, Sean, the Sean character, mm -hmm. barges into Escobar's mansion, mm -hmm. and he has one of his thugs, Escobar has one of his thugs, 
uh, puts, you know, catches Sean in the act of trying to attack him or something. He makes him sit down and watch as he has sex with this woman. Yep. I don't know if you remember that. That's in the very penultimate uh, um, so, episode of the first season, I believe that one's in. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, it was, you know, it was <laughs> to be walking around with, uh, in, you know, with no clothes on and in, be- in between takes, obviously, you know, they, they put a, 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 a robe on you, but I thought that that at times while I was doing some of the stuff that it was, uh, it was, uh, a little awkward, you know, but it's like, you know, the metaphor, I think that it's as, as appropriate as, you know, it's kind of like jumping in a swimming pool. You know, you jump in, sometimes it's kind of cold. You swim around a bit, you warm up before you know it. It's no big deal. And I think it was the same, same deal with, uh, with the show. And I think also because I got along really well with Julian and with Dylan, they're really nice and funny. And Ryan was, was, was a, was a blast, was a blast to work with. He was also very, uh, you know, just charismatic, very sensitive to people's needs. And you could talk to him. He was approachable. And, uh, we would discuss, you know, one of the, I think one of the funny conversations that we had was in the, it was in the, was in the, was in my trailer when we were discussing what Escobar would do in that sequence. Would he have sex with that woman in the missionary position? Or as I thought, well, I, I see this guy as not the most intimate character in the world, not the most sensitive man. Maybe he would just turn her around and, you know, do it that way. And he said, huh, okay. And, he, and, and we laughed about this at the party, the after party, when the, when the show premiered, about how Ryan Murphy joked about how I, I made that suggestion. He had to go tell the poor girl that she was going to have to basically get on all fours to do that. And we laughed about it in retrospect, about how that kind of little creative adjustment here and there uh, for the, uh, the visual aesthetic to play well. And obviously, based on what I've been hearing, is that that, that sequence is, seems to be seared into the collective psyche. Uh, you know, a lot of people seem to remember that. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, we, so, we're uh, doing at the yeah. end of every season, we do our top five moments of the season. And, yeah, that made our right. top five moments of season one. And I think to, <laughs> to this day, whenever I yeah. hear Cars by Gary yeah. Newman, I automatically think of your character. Because, like, seriously, that's just like your theme song, I think, on Nip Tuck. <laughs> You know, it's really ironic that you say that because when I was in the I was in the military from 1981 to 1985, I was in the Navy, U.S. Navy, and I traveled abroad. I, I traveled across the South Pacific, the equator. I, I was overseas. I went to Australia. I was I, and I was down there, uh, pun intended. I was in Australia, in Brisbane, mm-hmm. and in Darwin. I think were the two ports we hit. And you know, I, as you can see, I've, I've, I've quite an assortment and collection of tattoos. You know? Yes, I've noticed. And um, <laughs> while I was there. De- <laughs> when I was down there, and I, uh, you know, I, I checked out a couple of the local tattoo shops, and I remember being at a, also at a nightclub, and they were playing that song. This was in the '80s, and that song I think was on this was playing at clubs. The, the, the Gary Newman song "Cars," and I remember listening to that in the club, and I always remember having affection for that song, and I would just kind of go into this trance when I'd hear the song just drift off into some kind of fantasy. And, you know, it's ironic to me that, you know, fast forward, you know, several decades, more than several decades into the future, this is the theme song for a character, uh, the significant character that's, uh, you know, uh, that's affected so many people. I thought, wow, who knew? Yeah. But apparently I think maybe subconsciously, somehow I felt, you know, I, 
a connection to that for reasons I did not understand until now. Yes. And like, wow, wait a minute, talk about foreshadowing or a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, ESP going on. Yeah. You know? That's cool. crazy. And that's the thing that, um, yeah. with Escobar that I just, I love the fact that kind of there's always that tie into 80s music. And I mean, I think this is a Ryan yeah. Murphy thing, I feel, because, you know, obviously, you know, he went on to do Glee, but he's, he's so proactive with his music, I feel, in, in all of his shows. But, um, I just, I love mm-hmm. the vibe that whenever kind of Escobar would come on screen, you'd kind of get that 80s soundtrack, you know, tying it in yeah. a lot to sort of the Miami setting as well. Uh, and it just, it just right. works so well. I mean, do you, are you told in advance of kind of that Agreed. this would be a Agreed. thing played into it? I mean, during those scenes when you're like, oh, you know, I love the 80s and you're pressing play, do you get that played in the background to kind of get the vibe up going or is that all post-production? Um, no, there was a couple of sequences where there was music playing in the background and they would shut it off during the dialogue. But yeah, I do remember them playing a, a few songs that definitely uh, worked uh, to create the mood necessary for that. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Do you, um, are you told... open to that. And I think it's very, it can be very useful. Yeah, you know, no, I can, um, I can imagine. Yeah, to kind of yeah. add that up. Are you told sort of after pilot that, uh, that you're going to be brought back? Or is this kind of a thing that you get the call later on during the season that, hey, we want to make you kind of the, you know, the prominent antagonist for the, for the season and the final two episodes at least as well? Uh, no, there was no indication that the character would be brought back, given the, the way things concluded. It seemed almost impossible. Um, so it was ambiguous. You know, I, I had no way of knowing or even, you know, you like to believe that you'll live on, especially when something like a show, when a show like this is so successful, you know, but unfortunately the case with, you know, the bad guy or these nefarious types that the shelf life, unfortunately, isn't very long, at least hasn't been my experience, that you live long after uh, that uh, you know, experience. Um, but so, I mean, there had been talk, maybe there had been some talk about the possibility. And I, I remember I had spoken with, uh, some writer friends of mine and considered the possibility of pitching some ways to bring back the character. Um, and so those were submitted. I don't know if, if any of that affected ultimately the decision to bring the character back at first in the dream sequence and then ultimately to resurrect Escobar for real. Um, I have no way of really knowing if if uh, our efforts were observed or considered, or if it was just happenstance, you know, or you know, but a coincidence that Ryan decided that it would make sense to reintroduce the character later on. Mm, mm. And the thing that was always fun, though, seeing you sort of post season one before you obviously make that you know actual return in season four, though, was always those dream sequences and just kind of being Sean's conscience, uh, you know, that evil side of him. Mm-hmm. I mean, as an actor, sure. when you're obviously playing a dream as opposed to a you know a real character does that give you more creative freedom to be a bit more outlandish i mean escobar's a very outlandish character he's very over the top he's very charismatic he's great but knowing that you're in a dream Mm -hmm. sequence does that change your portrayal of the character um you know i try to be as free as i can uh and a lot of that has to do with uh who you're working with some directors writers producers etc have that um you know, have that kind of jazz disposition that, you know, they allow you to play somewhat outside the framework of what they've created. Some of them get very attached to what they've built and God help you if you, you know, if you, if you, if you stray, uh, you know, uh, at all from that. But I found that Ryan and everyone involved did give me freedom to explore various choices outside the structuring of the writing. I mean, I, you know, obviously I didn't, I didn't improvise my way through it, but I think that 
if I had an idea, if there was a, a something, a choice that made sense to me, from what I remember, that they were, whoever was directing on that day, they were open to that because they saw from the pilot, you know, after the pilot, the impact of that episode and, and the character. I think they appreciated what I had brought. Uh, I think every artist, performer, et cetera, brings something unique, ideally, to what has been written on the page. And I've dealt with this often that there's not a whole lot of dialogue always for for, uh, for actors like myself who get typecast often. They tend to trivialize or minimize the disposition, so you have to learn how to communicate thoughts, feelings, disposition without dialogue. You have to learn to communicate with your eyes. So I had learned, uh, you know, long before Nip Tuck to take something that was perceived as small and expand on it by, you know, uh, affecting the lens through a state of being that was um, effective, intense, whatever, you know, so and use body language, uh, state of being, thoughts to change the vibration of the room. I mean, often in life we come across individuals that don't say much to one another, but we can get a sense of what's occurring by a vibration, how we feel. And I think that a lot of the work I did on set, specifically with Nip Tuck, had to do with the uh, the mentality and the uh, the emotional component and the psychological disposition that I would manifest. It was like a kind of like a possession, mm. you know, like a, a, a psychic Ouija board. You open up your your yourself and channel through uh, this 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 um, the spirit of the character, as you will, and then use and and in that sometimes things just occur that you have no control over, and that's I think the magical aspect of performing that things that don't always are not always necessarily written on the page come about uh, uh, unforeseeable, and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. And to answer your question, I was allowed. I felt whether it was the dream sequence or the character actually being present in reality, to do any number of things that made sense to me in conjunction with whoever was overseeing that. So I had quite a bit of freedom Fantastic. to do that. And I was grateful that they also gave me dialogue as well, because like I said, I wasn't always allowed uh, the luxury to speak very often <laughs> in the work prior to that. That's yeah. that's great to hear, because I mean, it's just, I think kind of on the grand scheme of all of Nip Tuck, I mean, it's got to be Escobar and Ava as maybe the two key antagonists that I think everybody really remembers. And we're sort of at the at least at the oh. time of recording this we're you know right at the pointy end of season four so we're literally about to kind of mm-hmm. see your uh eventual demise but one thing that i really love about season four uh before you're sort of brought back in properly is uh the, the another dream sequence is when sean's obviously i think getting high on the brownies with with marijuana in it and he's with uh with the monica character and then kind of you're brought in there and it's kind of it's set to the the song obsession and just kind of the the fantasy sequence and kind of there's this oh fading. yeah You've got i like remember a that devil's tongue yeah. coming out of your mouth and just it's oh just yeah such an incredible sequence you it's have any memories that you of bring that, that up then yeah, it was interesting to to be able to 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 uh, to be in that particular position. <laughs> um, if you remember the detail of that sequence, yes, as Escobar yes. appears, uh, kind of gyrating to the to the to the beat of uh, of that song that you mentioned, "Obsession," with uh, any number of female cast members in front of him while he was doing. It. <laughs> Some would say it was a very inauspicious occasion. Others yes. would say it was, uh, you know, a, a lesson in degradation. I guess it all, it all depends on who you talk to. For me, it was a bit uncomfortable at first because when you're staring down 
at the uh, derriere, so so to speak, or the <laughs> bottom portion of uh, one of the lead actresses, and she's getting very, um, let's just say, she's very, uh, uh, I don't know, very involved in in the uh, in the moment. Uh, you're not quite sure where you stand in the balance <laughs> as an actor. It's like, okay, who am I now? Because I think there were moments where I felt like, okay, uh, what do we? What are we? Are we filming a pornography? <laughs> What's really going on here, man? Because it felt at times to be. Uh, I felt very exposed. Literally, I, I was. I had a g-string on. <laughs> so at that point, um, whatever inhibitions you have as an artist, you have to base quickly. Uh, you know, just uh, you know, uh, discard them and learn quickly to adapt. And that's what I had to do in that sequence, despite <laughs> what people imagine. You know, Robert Lasarda to be. In, 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 you know, in, in, in you know, in comparison to the character. I was a bit no- nervous uh, prior to that, and I think one of the other a- the actresses, not uh, the the, uh, the lead the f- uh, lead female, but uh, a guest star actress, had, had made a comment prior to that, something about utilizing that sequence in her gag reel, you know, <laughs> and I, that's when I realized that not everybody was comfortable with uh, the setup. But that was the, the that was the joy and the the the, uh, the, the, the I think the uh, the fascination with Nip Talk because Ryan took characters and, you know, spin them, you know, basically turned them on their heads, took situations and went to the extreme and used humor and music and conjured all sorts of, you know, lunacies that human beings deal with. And in a way that was not censored, obviously, and I think that's why it shook the foundation of the entertainment industry for a while because no one had ever seen anything like that before. So we're all kind of like being puppeted by this grand master, this, you know, this, you know, this, this, this ultimate, you know, more or less black magician, <laughs> it's like, you know, twirling his mustache, you know, and, and making us basically do various things. But, you know, ultimately it, it was, it was fortuitous because it all worked. Yeah. You know, it was not, it was not in vain. It actually was effective and people, and it was entertaining. It was embarrassing. It was cathartic. It was, your great writing, great acting, people having to look at themselves in the mirror literally, figuratively, spiritually, all these different layers of what was communicated in Nip Tuck. I think anybody, people who look at it, depending on, you can talk to five different people and they'll have five different reasons. They're very different from each other, what they take from that experience, what they observe from the show. I think that's why it's so, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's one of those prolific type of uh, series. It's not just one thing, it's many things occurring all at once. Yeah. And no. you never know, at least in the first few seasons, you never really knew what to expect. Like, oh God, I wonder what's, what kind of crazy, what kind of antics <laughs> are we in store for now? Completely you know, agree. And, uh, and, 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 and us as cast members, felt the exact same way we should. What's going to happen next? What, we, <laughs> what kind of situation or position, literally, are we going to find ourselves in? You know, so that was, it was kind of fun in a way yeah. uh, you know, to, to, to take those risks and, and, and also succeed with that. I can imagine. You know, I can so imagine. Beautiful. Yeah. And then, like, ultimately, yeah. when you get brought back, you know, outside of a dream sequence and we kind of first see you obviously uh you know in a, a hospital uh prison a prison hospital and you you kind of mm. you severely burnt because that's kind of how your character got wrapped up on season one what was the whole yeah. makeup effect like with that because you know, we kind of see you like with this extremely burnt swollen face and the next time we see you, you kind of look like some sort of frankenstein's monster with all these scars yeah. and everything piecing um, your face together yeah. i mean is that is that fun to kind of you know go through that process or is it annoying because you sit in a makeup chair obviously for countless hours to get that look um in this particular case for me uh, working with the Bermans, I think that's the name of the company, the, the family that did that uh, incredible uh, special effect with the face and, and, and so many of other things with the hands, creating the illusion of being burned and all that. Um, for me, in, with that experience, I found it to be very, very calming. It was 
uh, a time for me to just sit quietly and just meditate and prepare myself for what we were going to do. And then obviously the result was, was, was astounding uh, to see, to watch it. Cause I'd never seen, uh, anything like that before. I'd never, I think prior to that, I hadn't participated in a, in a film, a television project where they did that kind of, uh, you know, that cause that type of, you know, cosmetic effect where it was so drastic that you didn't even recognize yourself. So I felt like, you know, like, you know, kind of like another, just kind of pass, you know, just, a uh, outside observer. I'm like, you know, looking at it, watching uh, the sequence where you know Escobar reveal, you know, removes the bandage from his face and yeah. looks in the mirror, and he's got these uh, train track staples, you know, across his entire face. I thought, wow, this is really scary. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, well, that's you, Rob. I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> so I'm like, because well, you, you do this stuff, you, you know, you're in the middle of the sequence. You don't really look at yourself doing it. You're completely. At least I am. I, you know, like I said earlier, it's it, it's a, it's a it's a form of possession. And so, as the character, that particular mindset, that incarnation is occurring, so you don't really have a chance to look at what's occurring until later. And so when I watched it on the, big, on the screen, I was like, oh my God, that's what happened? Wow. And so it was, I think, just as, uh, just as, just as surprising and, and, and frightening for me to look at it. And as far as the process goes, that was the easiest part, just, just sitting, getting the makeup done. It wasn't like some of these movies I've done recently where they put a full body cast on you and they cover your face with latex and you can't see and hear and they poke a couple of straws up your nose and you have a bit of a, a, bit of a, a panic because you, you get this kind of sense of being, you know, uh, you know, suffocated. And so some actors, I've heard stories of some, you know, some of the bigger celebrities literally freaking out in the middle of that process and wow. tearing the mask off because they have a panic attack. Luckily for me, during the process with the Burmans, which was, like I said, was very, very mild, very chill, very calm. There was none of that. And other stuff I've done since then has been pretty, pretty, uh, pretty easy for me. Pretty easy. Uh, so I didn't find it to be that difficult to wear the makeup or the, the mask or any of that stuff. I actually found it to, it, 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 uh, like, it's like wardrobe. You, know, you put on a really cool suit, nice shoes, a hat, whatever the, uh, you know, the aesthetic is you, you put that on and I learned this from performing on stage is that the costume sometimes lends itself to the disposition of character. So the mask also also gives you a quality that you may not already have, you know, and then, you know, so that's the magic of the visual, I think, depending on how, how deep you go with it, you know, mm-hmm. and you, how, how, how you utilize that uh, in terms of building uh, the character dynamic within that situation. So I, I love being able to, uh, you know, get away from myself, whoever that is. You know, the idea of me as the as Robert and look at something that had nothing to do with anything that I had a frame of reference for, which would allow me to go deeper into that uh, that manifestation of character. And it, I mean, it works. You can you can definitely see how how well yeah. it comes across on screen with that. And the thing that I really love and we're, we're really discovering this uh robert about how much we're appreciating season four which to me is just the most underrated of all the nip tuck seasons but it really bookends a whole portion of the show from season one particularly from your storyline is the fact that you know mm. there's a subtle reference in season one about escobar being involved in organ trafficking which is kind of like okay fair enough and then obviously season four yeah. is pretty much all about this organ trafficking storyline with uh michelle's character uh, and then mm-hmm. it basically all kind of comes to a point where we find out that your character has been involved in it the whole time. Uh, I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. it's just such clever writing the way it sort of all came about. Were you, I guess, 
satisfied with the way Escobar ultimately ended up? Because the ultimate book ending, of course, was that you ended up in a in a river eaten by an alligator, <laughs> your body at least, uh, essentially how you told uh, Sean and Christian to do it in the very first episode. Uh, I mean, were you satisfied with the demise of, uh, of Escobar? Well, before I answer that, I'll say I should write another book about how many, all the different ways that uh, the characters I've portrayed have met with, uh, <laughs> let's just say, uh, unusual endings. Yes. Yeah. Um, I should write a book about that. Do uh, it. <laughs> you want the truth or you want to lie? I want the, want the absolute truth? truth today, Robert. Absolute uh, truth. Yeah, I don't think... At, yeah, at this stage of the game, Ben, I doubt very much it can hurt me nothing. I wasn't satisfied. I think I, along with a lot of people, were kind of disappointed that the character, because my feeling, my feeling that the character was, you know, destroyed at that point. Uh, was it a good, was it a good conclusion? Yes. I don't think it was a bad thing. I think it worked. Um, I think though, I think, I, I think the fantasy I had and probably others who developed an affection for the character more or less was that he would continue on mm-hmm. with them and, and be involved on some of always be lurking around. You never know when he's going to pop up and you know, create some type of, uh, situation where Sean and and, uh, and Christian have to jump through hoops. I thought my feeling was, because I was probably the last to, to find out that the character was going to be killed. Uh, other people were aware of this. I figured, I thought I had a chance maybe at, you know, uh, surviving uh, and then moving into season five. So when I found out that that was the case and the way that the character was was destroyed by the wife, I thought was very, was, was clever. And some people didn't see it coming. Some people did. Um, but I think when you, when you look at it in retrospect and you saw how, how much work was, was put into bringing that, bringing Escobar back, it just seemed kind of like a little bit of a waste to remove him from the equation so quickly like that. Um, but you know, that's just my feeling about it. I had wished that, you know, he would have continued on a little bit longer. Hmm. I mean, it's, it sort of surprised me that. I mean, I guess kind of with the official death of the character that you still didn't maybe make an appearance or two kind of in a, in a Sean dream sequence, which was kind of your sort of thing there for a while. But, uh, I mean, was there any ever discussion of that possibly happening? Well, yeah, was there was. There, I, yeah, th- yeah, there was, actually. I don't know. I think it was the very final season where um, Sean does have a... He has a, a... There is a dream sequence where Escobar appears again, and the daughter... There was, a, there was, a, there was an episode written about uh, Escobar's daughter appearing... Who You're right. Yes. Yes, answer. I do remember that now. Yes. yes. Yeah, that was the only uh, additional episode after they, you know, after uh, Escobar's character was actually killed, they brought the character back in a dream sequence. Yeah, After yeah, no, that. you're, you're right. It's, it's uh, I'll be absolutely honest with you, Robert. Uh, season six, I generally erased from my memory. I wasn't a big fan of season six. That's probably why I haven't watched it in a few years, but, um, <laughs> that's, you're all right now. Yeah, well, some, some might, <laughs> well, you know, some might say, Ben, that the reason it's, the, the latter seasons were not so memorable is because the show kind of lost some traction. I think some would felt mm. that the show was not as, uh, it's just a little bit different than what they had remembered in the first few seasons. I think what happened too is, I know I know this for, I, I know this for a fact that Ryan Murphy, at a certain stage during Nip Tuck, went on to film Glee. He created that show obviously, and then he went on to focus more on Glee. And I think there were others at the helm that uh, were responsible for where the show uh, went after that. So you know, some depending on who you talk to, some feel like the show. Um, got a bit uh, off track after the fourth season or after the fifth season. 
some would say, you know, it was it was perfect, or others felt that there was they wanted more. But um, I think that because of his his focus on Glee, that that's prob one of the I, that's my theory. One of the reasons why the show inevitably just kind of just disappeared, you know, and just you know went the way of I would say mediocrity. It kind of lost some yeah. of the uh, characteristics and uh, what people loved in the beginning. Yeah, they didn't quite under. It seemed a bit absurd. I think. I mean, it was known for being absurd, but it didn't. I don't know how. I think that audiences were starting to get a little bit um, frustrated and uh, disappointed over some of the episodes. That's mm. that's. I heard this because people were always coming up to me, giving me that whether I asked for asked for their their opinion or not, they would you know more than happy to just explain to me what they how they felt and like man they shouldn't have killed your character off or you know the show is not as good as it used to be or what's going on like and i had i, I don't know that's <laughs> you know, it's, it's a little bit above my pay grade man you know I, I left i left i left the building at season four i'm not really responsible for what happens after that you know i and i didn't you know but i think some people felt that uh you know, it could have went different. I think they felt that as soon as the characters went from Miami to L.A. to move to L.A., that it got a bit strange. Yeah, that. I think that's generally conceived the jump the shark moment. I think it kind of, there yeah. was a few, I think season five has its merits. I think there was a, some fun stuff in L.A. I think it was mainly when they separated into two halves and it was the second part of season five that <laughs> to me is really where it started to really go downhill. And, I mean, the two storylines that always stand out for me is Liz and Christian hooking up and Matt turning into a mime. From that point, I'm like, okay, I think this show's on its way out. Uh, so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They're exactly. the moments. They're exactly the moments. Right. I mean, there do, you, do yeah. you stay in touch with many of the people that you work with on the attack? Because, I mean, one thing also kind of on a side note with that question, I mean, on the topic of Ryan Murphy, he, he obviously has a habit of kind of you know, getting a lot of the people he's worked with and, and casting them in his, his other shows. Now, I, I don't know if you were ever offered the role of like a family friendly school teacher in Glee. I don't know if that really uh, suits the type of character you generally play, yeah. Robert. But uh, has you had that opportunity to potentially work with Ryan a again at any point? I've had the opportunity to play characters that are uh, a little bit more benign, somewhat more intelligent, and have some, you know, some semblance of morality going on there. So the answer is yes. I've been invited into situations where I play characters that are not um, that are not uh, evil, you know, that you know uh, have some type of moral fabric. And uh, but I think you know with Ryan, who knows? I mean, I, I I'd heard I'd also heard some talk about possibly being doing that show when that show was being filmed, Glee specifically, that there might be some interest. Uh, for me to participate in that show, but I, you know, I don't know. You never, you hear things all the time for any number of reasons. They don't manifest. Who knows why? And I was also, uh, I think, remember that with American Horror Story, there was some interest mm. in me for participating in that show as well. Um, but you know, nothing has materialized yet. But as far as Ryan Murphy goes, my my only experience with him has been on Nip Tuck, and uh, and I'm grateful for that. Uh, I, I think also it, it, it was turned out to be something very. Uh, you know, uh, just, I don't know, for me, it just turned out to be, uh, like, I, like I said earlier, I had no way of knowing that it would make this kind of impact or that I'd been talking with someone like yourself um, after all these years and, you know, and, and, and reminiscing about this. Um, so in that sense, I think Ryan and his staff and all the people associated with that, you know, Michael Robbins, et cetera, you know, Greer Shepard, who was one of the earlier producers, they were all, I think, extremely... Um, helpful 
and, and, and uh, assisting me in uh, being seen in an extremely competitive industry where it's, you know, once you are perceived a certain way, it's very difficult, I think, to maintain, um, uh, you know, uh, you know a, a continual position in the realm uh, because it's so competitive and a lot of times, you know, you see a character and you never see them again. I think because of the visibility of something like Nip Tuck, uh, I will be forever thankful for Ryan Alden because I got a lot of job offers after people. And to this day, people still come up and say, I love you on Nip Tuck. We just now started watching the show. And, you know, I get producers and writers contacting me and say, I want to work with you, man. I've wanted to work with you ever since I saw you on Nip Tuck. So basically, wherever Ryan Murphy left off, there's been other producers and, and writers and directors who've, you know, picked they're taking that ball and run with it, you know, and they've run into, into similar geographies, basically portraying, you know, this nefarious, you know, uh, diabolical type thing. But then there's another situations of work where uh, I get to do something a little bit different, you know, that doesn't involve the destruction of humanity. It's more of an uplifting type of, you know, situation where the character is allowed not only to participate through the entire story, but is not destroyed in the end, you know, yeah. so I'm, I'm grateful that, you know, now that I'm being allowed to run the full gamut and you know, run the extent of the field, not be taken out halfway through, you know. So, uh, so in that sense, the spirit of Ryan's work has carried over into other projects. And not then eventually add to that uh, ultimate book that you're talking about writing about the uh, the many demises of uh, Robert Lozano and all the weird ways that I've yeah, ended up uh, pretty much. being taken out. <laughs> yeah. Let's see. Uh, hit by, you know, exactly, right? Eaten by alligator, thrown off a building, hit by yep. a truck, you know, yep. thrown on fire, decapitated, you know, shot mm-hmm. many times. <laughs> yep. It's like you've got a bucket yeah. list. Which way can I be killed off? I feel you need to say to the writers and that when you're going for a role, like, I see you killing me off this way. I've already been killed off that way previously on, on this show. Can you maybe exactly. kill me off this way? I've got some suggestions for you. <laughs> yeah. I think I'll just change my last name to Lazarus. Yes. You know, like that yes. biblical man, the, you know, the, the character that was you know, <laughs> you know, supposedly brought back from the dead by Jesus. You know, I'll just be that guy. Because, you know, no, no matter how many times they take the character out, he reappears on yep. some other stage, some other yep. show, some other world, doing something. So I think, yeah. I like that. I like that. That would yeah. work. I've got to ask, Robert, and this is no doubt the question yeah. that uh, everybody asks you, uh, the tattoos. Now, is there a story? Like, I mean, is this just something over the years that's kind of just, you know, happened? Uh, I mean, and how many do you have? I mean, it just seems like you're just a, a living, moving piece of artwork, really. They look absolutely incredible. Thank you, sir. And that's a great way to describe it, a living, moving piece of artwork. That's what I, that's my observation. That's how I, I choose to see it. And I think the good news is that in the, you know, the recent years, it's become such a trendy, celebrated type of experience that uh, it's easier for me now to uh, participate in you know, uh, certain aspects of, of my day-to-day personal life without being you know, scrutinized and also being allowed, I think, to do a lot more within the professional setting, uh, characters that, you know, maybe years ago wouldn't be allowed to portray a father, a sheriff, uh, you know, any number of, you know, a, a, work, a blue class working character that just so happens to have, you know, full sleeves. I'm sure you see this a lot in Australia. I see it all mm-hmm. on the, across the United States. I travel to Europe to, to tattoo conventions. And I'm, so what I'm seeing now is this, this, this incredible, you know, revolution of ink and so many young people that come from so many, you know, all these different walks of life, uh, celebrating that and experiencing, communicating their their feelings, their spirit, their personalities, their trends, their whatever the whatever the thing is, 
and the, the you know the, the psychological, emotional dynamic that motivates people to permanently decorate themselves like that is interesting to observe in the 21st century. When I first started, like I told you earlier, I was traveling around the Navy, uh, going overseas to ports like Australia, Fiji Islands, you know, South Pacific, the Orient, etc. So I collected tattoos early on in the 1980s. Uh, by the time I was 22. I lost count of how many tattoos I had. I had full <laughs> sleeves, um, and it wasn't it wasn't cool back then to be walking around, uh, to you know, to, you know, to, and 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 you know, the visible tattoos to that extent were frowned upon. You know, you were either you know perceived as a you know a social deviant or you know pariah or you know, convict, drug addict. You know, go down the list. So it was not popular. Um, so, like I said, in retrospect, to witness this celebratory, uh, almost like, hey, you know, uh, uh, appreciative disposition of so many young people, like, oh, man, I grew up watching your movies, Robert. I mean, talking about before Nip Tuck, even before the sensation of Nip Tuck, because it's probably one of the most visible products or projects I've been involved with. People have come up to me, especially in the tattoo community, and, you know, and, and thanked me for helping to assist them and feeling okay about their uniqueness and communicating that in their skin. And for me, it's been the same thing. To communicate, uh, you know, various mythologies. Uh, I've always been fascinated by Greek mythology, the story of Ulysses and the Cyclops, you know, the one-eyed monster. So I tattooed that monster on me. I tattooed a lot of my heroes in horror films, like Frankenstein the Monster, the Wolfman. So it's very personal for me in terms of, uh, you know, uh, movies and, and being affected by various stories and iconic symbols that you know have meaning to me uh and so i think in that sense um people especially nowadays can appreciate the art form not you know oh yeah you have tattoos so that means you belong in this category and i think slowly but surely hollywood is starting to figure out how to exploit that more um realistically i wouldn't say they they've embraced it but i would say that they understand its relevance i don't know how willing they are to forgive it and allow it to participate to the degree in which it deserves. But if you look at American history, and especially the history of Australia, you know, it being a colony, and people looking at other people who are tattooed a certain way because of the history, a lot of time it is associated with a criminal lifestyle, right? So what's happening now is you get a lot of young, beautiful people, men and women, that are ornamenting themselves, and, and, they, and socially it's actually it, it, it's integrated very well. What we yeah. need now is to bridge that gap and allow young people, even some older people like myself, to participate in stories where you know the person just so happens to have them. Maybe he's a father, maybe he's a fireman, maybe his wife has, maybe she's a nurse. Who knows? But it, I think we get we the fantasy is that we will get to a point ultimately where it becomes a non-issue. Mm -hmm. That it's just artwork, and now we can move on with the rest of the story. We don't have to apologize for the tattoos. We don't have to turn turn him into Escobar and have him, you know, stabbing, you know, injecting someone's penis or <laughs> you know, setting a building on fire necessarily. Now, don't get me wrong; there's something to be said about that type of entertainment. But I think at this stage of the game, from the point of view of the art itself, I think any artist would agree or performer would agree that if you don't diversify and evolve, you face extinction. So I think it's a necessary course of action and development uh, creatively to be allowed to participate on other levels, especially if there's intelligence there or the writers understand what's happening socially and figure out a way to integrate that. And I'm starting to see that now uh, with my work because, I'm, like I said earlier, I'm being finally allowed to participate in movies where the character arc 
uh, you know, uh, you know, basically survives the entire story, you know, and then there's something that occurs that could even be perceived as, uh, I don't know, uh, triumphant because, you know, he's not always possessed, placed in the position of a dilemma, he, you know, and he, so in that sense, I feel that um, there's something to be said about the tattoo now, and especially in the position I'm in, as probably being one of the most heavily tattoos, tattooed actors in the industry ever, and where do things stand now? And where do they stand prior to Nip Tuck, and where do they stand after Nip Tuck? You know what I mean? And so the good news is that they're still standing. You know what I mean? And so in that sense, there's plenty of places to explore. Now, whether it's Ryan Murphy that gives me the call or somebody else, it doesn't really matter to me. The good news is that there's still, there's still an opportunity to grow as an artist and, and include all the aspects of self without any shame involved. You know, I'd, I'd like to believe that Nip Tuck and other shows have helped a lot of people come to terms uh, with that, that what they perceived or were, were taught to be a physical limitation that they need to feel bad about. And I think Nip Tuck actually obviously explored that. So I think it's, a, it's an appropriate journey for me to be one of the pioneers and one of the front runners and continuing to look at, well, where do we go from here? You know, Nip was focusing on this, you know, people hating themselves or not comfortable in their skin, and what do you do about that? Is it a spiritual issue? Is it just simply cosmetic? How does a human being eventually, ultimately, in an art form or in their lives, uh, move on and embrace themselves rather than, you know, being taught by society or others to demonize that or have others demonize it? So, you know what I mean? So we face a challenging time, especially me as an artist. In this regard, with the tattoos, you know. fantastic way of describing that, Robert. I've never sort of uh, you know thought about all the ins and outs that way of it, but uh, you know, it definitely uh, yeah puts that all into perspective. So uh, yeah, thanks for mm-hmm. thanks for sharing that with us. Uh, but I, I guess I need to ask in terms of you know what's happening now. I mean, uh, what what projects do you have ongoing at the moment? Any that you can share with us now that we should uh, keep an eye out for you that we we're, we're going to see you in moving forward. Yes, there's several movies that will be released this year. I don't want to go into too much detail as far as the story, but I will say I have uh, a movie with uh, that I I, uh, I was very happy to participate in because uh, I got to work with uh, an actor I have a tremendous affection for, who I grew up watching, who's my one of my idols, is, and that's Burt Reynolds. I don't mm. know if you're familiar with the Smokey and yeah. the Bandit movies or mm-hmm. you know the uh, Deliverance, some of these incredible icons, The Longest Jar, and go down a a list of incredible films that he's that he's uh, done and, and a tremendous contribution he's made uh, as an artist and as, as a movie star. So I got to work with him in a movie called Henry that will be released this year. He plays my father. Um, and so that was amazing for me. That was you know, just, you know, I was beside myself. And then uh, I just have a movie come out called Blood Circus uh, that's available on, I think, Amazon. And then I have uh, several movies coming out also this year, something called Homestay, which is a psychological thriller. Another movie called The Pizza Joint, which is a comedy. Um, I've got yeah, a film, a horror comedy called Cynthia uh, that's directed by Devin Downs and Kenny Gage, who I work with on a film called Anarchy Parlor, another horror film. And that'll be released this year as well. Beautiful. Plenty to keep, plenty to keep you, uh, working there. And obviously, uh, for fans of yours out there, you know, to really kind of, uh, pay attention to. And, uh, social media or anything along those lines, I, I'm on right now. I'm on robertlasado.com. Great website here with, uh, you know, a great demo reel of you. Thank great, you. uh, background story of, uh, you and everything there. I mean, uh, any, any other things you want to plug today while we've got you here that, uh, people can check you out on? I think that for those who are interested 
in some of the more of the some of the more uh, uh, some of the some of the details and my experiences with auditioning and dealing with Hollywood um, on my own terms might want to read my autobiography entitled Life Sentence, where I talk about showing up at auditions and being told by casting directors, oh, excuse me, sir, the, uh, the messenger entrance is around back. And I, and I would, you know, and, I, and so I think they may be curious to know what it would be like, what it was like to start out uh, in the industry looking the way I do and some of the experiences I had auditioning for Nip Talk, what my experiences on the show was, you know, was like in detail and other shows that have given me some kind of, uh, you know, some visibility. And uh, I think that, you know, I think that book, Life Sentence, would be answer a lot of questions that people have asked me over the years. That's why I wrote it because I think people for years have asked me, hey, man, like yourself, hey, tell me, man, what, what do the tattoos mean? What's that about? What, what, what motivated you to do that? Why did you do that? You know, what, what does this mean? What does that mean? Hey, hey, what's it like to be in a movie? Hey, what was it like working with this one? Hey, what was it like, like working with that one? You know, because they look at my resume and they say, man, you've, been in, you, you've showed up in, in an assortment of different genres of film, dramas, comedies, action, you know, psychological, all these things. What was, what's it like to do all that? And in this book, I, I cover a lot of the, the, uh, a lot of that. And, uh, and sometimes I, 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 I think it's important, uh, to communicate that experience in my own words, because as you've observed, they've been writing me a certain way for very, for a very long time. And I think that if anything, I, I want to have the, you know, just like we were talking about, uh, honest feelings about how things concluded with Nip Tuck. Well, how do you feel, Robert, about being portrayed always, or you know, for the most part, you know, up to X amount of years this way? How do you feel about that? And why do you think that people in power still look at the tattoo or look at you a certain way? Why do you think that occurs? You know, what, what's what's the driving force? How do you feel about it? How do you deal with it? Where's it going now? And I, I, I discuss a lot of this in my book. And I think anybody who feels ill-placed or misplaced in the world or in their, their you know, professional life, that regardless of what they do for a living, might relate to identify with the struggle uh, that comes through, that, that occurs when people judge one another and uh, stereotype based on appearance. Not that the appearance is wrong, because, you know, as we're looking at these days, the appearance is actually quite beautiful to observe. When you mm -hmm. see incredible artwork that you've described in your comments to me, I think it's important to understand the, uh, the, the journey through that and what, you know, what it was like and what it's like now. Beautiful. So the book is entitled Life Sentence, a true story about love, lunacy, and fame. Mm, that's perfect cool. subtitle. I'm looking at it right now, and it's it's on your website. So uh, we'll tag this on our yeah. on our posts, obviously, uh, by people who click on the store link uh, here on robertlasado.com to uh, to grab a copy. So uh, by all means, do that. Thank I, you, I'm, Ben. I'm I feeling like I need to grab a copy of this too. Sure. I think I'm going to click on this buy a book uh, section when I finish here on the interview with you, mate, and we'll uh, have to uh, have to read it and uh, yeah, really get a get a thing because just reading your bio, which is I mean, it really is such an incredible life that you've you've led to this point. So uh, you know, obviously we're we're focused on Nip Tuck today, but I feel that uh, we might need to get you back on again at some point in the future and we will cover a few more things because you've definitely had an amazing career and it seems like things are still going great for you, mate. So we we obviously appreciate you on the show today and uh, by all means we'll. We'll stay in touch, and we'll have to get you back again here on the Oz Network. Thank you, Ben. I appreciate that. Yeah, I appreciate your words, your kind words, and your time. Thank you so much. 
and a big thank you to Robert and all the management involved for organising that and uh, fantastic insight there into everything uh, related to his career and by all means check out his website, grab his book and uh, learn a little bit more about the man and as always we will be learning more about other people uh, along the way because of course we have plenty of uh, people still to come lined up hopefully so stay tuned and if you're of course a Nip Tuck fan Tuesday is Nip Tuck Day that's when you can get our rewatch episodes direct into your speakers best way to do of course is subscribing online to our podcast you can do that by iTunes Spotify Stitcher and everything else in between like us on Facebook theosnetwork.net is our website all the regular channels and we appreciate any feedback you may want to give us along the way thanks again to Robert thanks again for everybody listening and until we next speak again my name is Ben this is the Oz Network and we'll speak to you next time good night thank you for listening to the Oz Network don't forget to subscribe to get new episodes delivered to your speakers every week for more information hit us up at theoznetwork.net